Well, that's a wonderfully sobering song for us to hear as we open God's Word. Can you feel the, the turning of the seasons? And you look down the road and just around the bend is colorful trees and cold weather and, yep, snow. <laughs> Spoken like true Michiganders. This week I was thinking about that. We, when Lois and I first married, I was 21, and we took a little church in the country in Ohio, and it's it was called Beaver Chapel, and it was on Swamp Road. It was a. It's, People there wouldn't appreciate you making fun of their church. It was on Swamp Road and Karsh Road. And it was right across the street was a little, uh, little uh, uh, parsonage that we was our first house we lived in together. And that's where we were when our first child was born. It's probably a good time for me to wedge in, uh, welcome a special guest today. Heidi is with us. Count her as two. You mind me doing that? So. And uh, ushers, be very careful. We're pro-life here, so if you can, count them as two. And uh, so what was I talking about? That's when Kyle was born. There was a guy that took care of the cemetery. The church was built on the corner, and around the church was a cemetery, and that's the way it always ought to be. Because that way, when you're coming and going from church, you have this consciousness that one day, and perhaps soon, you're going to die. Just add weight and authority to the messages and songs. Marion was the guy's name. You remember him, Lois? Took care of the cemetery. So I was out talking with Marion one day. He was leaning on a shovel. And he said to me, it was this time of the year, he said, You know, when the seasons change, people die. I'm like, well, people die all the time. He said, yeah, but when the seasons change, you see it. You watch. More people die when the seasons change. I was driving at the turning of the seasons this week from summer to fall and thinking about that. And I looked up. I was on Fort Street, and I happened to be right by a funeral home, and the parking lot was full of people that had spilled out of the funeral home having said goodbye to a loved one. I was out walking one morning praying, and I went back to the woods, and I was coming back to the church from the woods, and I was walking through the cemetery, and I was shocked when I saw a stone that had the name of one of my parishioners on it. She wasn't dead yet. It was her name, Eva. It was her birth date, and then there was that blank. But now that'll make you think. I'm going to preach on Sunday to somebody who already has a plot and a stone with their name in it. And you may not have a plot yet or a stone with your name on it. But unless Jesus pulls us away in the rapture, your your loved ones will gather around a spot on this earth someday and the tears will fall and they will remember your life. And you will be gone. 
And so today we come to a passage where Jesus comes face to face with death, our darkest enemy. What does Jesus do when he comes face to face with death? Our text is Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. It's a story with a story in it. It's It's a story of the death of a person, and not just a person, but a woman, and not just a woman, but a 12-year-old girl. It's a story of a desperate man who comes to Jesus and pleads with Jesus to do something about his 12-year-old daughter who died. And embedded in the story is another little story, a wonderful story of its own, of a kind of divine interruption. It's a wonderful text. And in it we see Jesus, our Savior, coming face to face with our darkest enemy, death. And today, out of special reverence to the Word of God, let's stand together as we read Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and, and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And so Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment. She said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. But Jesus turned around. When he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. He said, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in. And he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Amen. Father, thank you that you have spoken in your word. And we, with, with happy hearts and with trembling hands and with eager minds, we attend to your word today. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, there's the story. You've got a request for healing from the ruler of a synagogue. If you harmonize the accounts, his name was Jarius. The, the synagogue is, is Capernaum. He's the ruler, a ruler, a key ruler in a synagogue. These are the people that Jesus in his public ministry would often take aim at. They were the religious establishment. Often, these were the people who, they didn't like this kind of knockoff rabbi. They, they, they didn't, they didn't appreciate him. There was a, there's a lot of territorial fighting. There was a lot of jealousy. But now this, this man, this ruler of the synagogue, he had a desperate need. And he had this desperate need drove him to humility. He came and he, he knelt or he threw himself down at Jesus' feet. And he pleaded with Jesus to help him because his 12-year-old sunshine had gone out of his life. I have a man who I know who doesn't know the Lord. And I watch his life. We were at a funeral together. 
After the funeral, I thought this might be a good time for me to let him know that I care about him and that my family prays for him. So there we were out by the hillside in Kentucky. And there we stood, gathered around the grave of a loved one. And I put my hand up on his shoulder. I told him what I've told a lot of people. Sometimes people really appreciate this, but he didn't. I said to him, Bob, I want you to know that my family, we pray for you every day. My kids, they pray for you every night. I thought that it might be well received. He kind of looked at me and he said, I, I don't need your prayers. I said, I'm sorry. But since then, I've watched his life coming unglued. And I've had a number of occasions to hear the indirect request. Could you pray for me? You're never more clear-minded than when you know that you desperately need Jesus Christ to do what only he can do. And you throw yourself down and you say, Jesus, help me. Jesus is willing to help people who throw themselves down in despair. Jesus is available. He cares. His heart beats for people who in their desperate hour come and they, they humble themselves and they ask him for help. Jesus is waiting for people to do that. He knows how hard our lives are. He knows how desperate our situations are. He knows how dark our, our enemy death is and how we all hear its footfall behind us and fear it. And he desires that we would humble ourselves. And he's prepared to help us when we ask. But so it was with this man. So if you're here Wednesday night, you know that on Wednesday we had our pastoral staff meeting. And we're just talking about how to, how to connect with more lost people in our area that need the Lord. And talking about how people need the Lord, but they don't know they need the Lord. And how can we help them to understand they need the Lord? And... And then we closed our meeting and we prayed and we closed our meeting. And then I went out for lunch. And when I walked out, car was coming in the driveway. A red, little red car was coming in the driveway. I didn't know who it was. I couldn't tell. I just waved at the car. And then I was walking over to my car and I thought, well, I'll glance back and see if it's somebody I know. And it wasn't. It was just a woman in a red car with a window down. But she looked troubled. So I went over to her and I said, can I help you? Oh, she said, my son is uh, written me a note. I, I fear that he's going to take his life. Sometimes he comes over to this creek over here. I'm just coming to see if he's here. I said, can I pray with you? And I reached in the window, I took a hold of her arm. I said, can I pray with you? And she literally began to sob and weep. Yes, please pray for me. Please pray for me. And I prayed and she drove over, drove along the creek went out and I watched her as she drove away. She wiped tears from her eyes. I'm pretty confident that God arranged that little meeting right there. So there are people that are out there whose hearts are grieved by the difficulties of life. And there are people right here who this week have been deeply grieved. And some of you come come with a heavy heart right now. Things that you don't have an answer for. Things you've tried to fix and you can't fix. Things that require things that only God can do. And we have this beautiful little story 
about a man who come to that wonderful place in his life where he knew he would have to throw himself down at Jesus' feet and plead with him for help, and he did. So Jesus immediately, without a word, in the text, there's, there's not even a word, there's not an answer. He gets up, his disciples follow him, he goes to, to help him. Busy, Jesus is busy. But he's not too busy for this desperate man. But as it is so often is in life, there's an interruption. And what an untimely interruption it is. You're on your way to, to, is there something that we can do for my daughter? She's dead. And then Jesus stops to chat with this woman. What's going on? Why is Jesus talking quietly to this woman when my daughter has died and I so desperately need him? Let's read it again. Verse 20, and suddenly, woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment. It was the tassel. This woman had a menstrual problem. 12 years. As long as the man's little girl had been alive, she had had this affliction. It rendered her ceremonial unclean. She couldn't go to synagogue. It would have interrupted normal marital relations. It would have made childbirth impossible for her. And it got worse and worse. If you harmonize the accounts, you see that she spent money on doctors here and there and she exhausted her money and she was only getting worse. She was in a desperate situation and she heard about Jesus. She slipped up behind him and thinking, if I just touch the hem of his garment, if I touch the tassel on his robe, I'll be healed. And she did. And Jesus turns around and he speaks to her. And notice what it says in verse 22. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Can you please not leave this room without connecting your darkest enemy death with faith in Jesus Christ? Remember that. Because this this was uh, an interesting interruption. How would you have felt if you'd been interrupted in this way? And the Bible says the woman was, was made well from that hour. And then Jesus came to the ruler's house and there were mourners there, flute players and mourners wailing. In that culture, they would hire. If you're wealthy, you could hire lots of mourners. If you, if you weren't wealthy, just a couple of flute players and maybe a lady mourning and wailing. And they were wailing, they were mourning, they're making noise. Jesus is like, um, she's not dead, she's sleeping. This was a euphemism for death. And Jesus said, she was dead. You, you harmonize the accounts, you look in the book of Matthew, you see it in Mark, you see she was dead. He raised the dead. And yet he says he wants them to understand that he has authority over death. And Matthew wants the readers to understand that Jesus is shown his authority over darkness, over demons, over disease. And now he's going to trump death. He's going to show his authority, his absolute supreme authority over the darkest enemy we have, over death. And this is what he's going to do. Raise this girl from the dead. And he does. And so it says in just a little sparse narrative, just a little tiny bit. It just doesn't say too much. When the crowd was put outside, he went in. They made fun of him. They mocked him. They were mourning. And in a moment, they were mocking. Hireling mourners that they were. And they ridiculed him. But, But when the crowd was put outside... He went in. Uh, according to the other scriptures, he took a few of his disciples with him. He took her by the hand and she arose. That's all it says. She arose. That would mean she's not dead anymore. 
Later, the other accounts, you know, he mentions feed her. I like that part. Get the girl some food, please. Like, what were they thinking? And I was like, they're looking. She's alive. She's also hungry. And then verse 26 says, the report went out to all the land. Now, now why, did, why, did, why is this story in the Bible? Why did the Spirit of God inspire Matthew to put this story in our Bibles? Why is that? Why is it that the Spirit supernaturally inspired and providentially preserved this story for His church tumbling down through the ages that age after age Christian people would gather in worship and they would read this story? Why is it here? Why is it here? What is His intent? I want to suggest to you is because He wanted to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He wanted to show that Jesus was God in human flesh. He wanted to show that Jesus was virgin born. He wanted to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic promises. He wanted to show in other places that Jesus had power over demons. He wanted to show that Jesus had power over disease. And now he wants us to understand in our day as well as that day that Jesus is the conqueror of death. That Jesus alone has power over our darkest enemy, death. Got an email from my dad. And he gets us up to speed. He puts a little email together, gets us up to speed on everything that's happening with everybody in the family. So it's like a little, like kind of a little newsletter. He once in a while, he'll just send it out. And I'm... Uh, Driving along the highway, nighttime, and I noticed it, so I glance at, at it. My people, my dad's side of the family that have passed on, they lie in Wilson Cemetery north of Newark, Ohio. Jerome Pierpont, Sarah and Charles Pierpont, my grandfather, Kenneth Pierpont, has a, they all have stones there. You can walk around and see him. My grandpa's named Kenneth Pierpont, so I had stone with my name on it. <laughs> kind of sobering. And not too long ago, my parents said, hey, we want you kids to know that we bought places in the Wilson Cemetery. I didn't want to hear that. And then in the email... My dad said, mom, your, your mom and I wanted you to know that we bought stones. I'm like, What's that about? I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to visit your grave. I don't want to read your name on a stone. I hate that. I hate death. I hate aging and everything that goes with it. And none of us are any match for that. And if this Bible is not true, and Jesus is not who he says he is, we are completely without hope in this world. We are completely without hope. But because Jesus Christ died and rose again and conquered death, he is the one who can look death squarely in the eye and come out of the other side victorious. And us, through him, can have victory through Christ and only through Christ. By faith in Christ, we conquered death, our darkest enemy. Do you ever wonder when you read these, why so few people are healed? 
And why so few people are raised from the dead? And how handy that would be. I, I do a lot of hospital calling, so do the other pastors here. You, you go to the hospital, you often ask people, God to comfort people in their sickness. And I just thought it would be kind of humorous if you kind of went to the hospital. Here's somebody who's seriously bad, you know, really bad sick. And you go to the hospital, you read a little New Testament, and you chat them up, you know, like you do in the hospital. And then you stay out of the doctor's way and so forth. And then you pray for their healing. And then they would, wouldn't it be cool if they just like got up and followed you out? You're like, what are you doing? You go, I'm going home, going to lunch. Let's do something. Why? Because you prayed and I'm healed. We would go, what? Are you serious? Like we just don't expect it to happen that often. Or how cool would it be if you're at a funeral and you go, you know, I just don't like this. This is not rolling the way I want it to roll. Why don't you get up? Come on. Let's go home. Let's do something. And the casket, whoop, a person just gets out. It doesn't happen that often. You read a passage like this, it's kind of like, that's kind of unusual, wouldn't you say? Remember the young, you heard of the young pastor, and he's thinking, what, what, what it was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was, had to preach a funeral. And so he decided, I, I don't know how to preach a funeral. I wonder how Jesus did it. So he would look through the Bible for places where Jesus preached a funeral, but he couldn't find it because Jesus had a tendency to conduct resurrections. <laughs> That's the way he is. But not always. Often we die. Hundreds, thousands, millions of faithful Christians gotten sick and not been healed, died and not been raised from the dead. Now, why? Because Jesus did not come to this earth primarily to bring physical healing and, and physical life to people. He didn't. He did those things to prove that he would ultimately conquer death. He came to give eternal life. He came to save sinners and give to us eternal life. He came so that he could die, rise again, ascend, send his spirit, so that you and I could have abundant life. He's all about life. Now the evil one, your enemy who hates you and who desperately wants to destroy you, he's the opposite of that. He came to kill you. He came to he came to bring death to everything that's precious to you. He wants to kill your family. He wants to kill your marriage. He wants to kill this church. He wants to kill you. He wants to take you to hell if he can. So you don't ever want to listen to him. You don't ever want to listen to his prophets. You don't ever want to buy into the lie that somewhere outside of Jesus Christ is really life and happiness and joy and vitality. You don't ever want to believe that because only Jesus is Jesus is the only one who brings life. And the enemy he brings death. He comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. On a good morning, <laughs> on a good morning, I go to the gym. Uh, don't have good mornings a lot, but I, on a good morning, I go to the gym. And there are two, and in my observation, there are two kinds of people at the gym where I go. They're young people that are trying to improve on their perfection. I mean, they look pretty good. I'm like, you know, they're in their, they're in the prime of their youth, the flat-bellied types, you know. And they're working that to make that even better so that they will be attractive and virile and all of that stuff. You know, I get that. That's not the group I'm in. Uh, there's another group. <laughs> it's kind of a desperate group. You know, they're, they're like, you look at them and you know what's going on there. They are just, they're just running, man. They're running and they're, they, because they hear footsteps behind them. They're like, they know they're going to die. And it might be soon. And they've been threatened by their physicians. And so they're, be, they're out there, you know, cycling a cycle and, you know, running on the treadmill. And, and they're trying to keep ahead of the undertaker. <laughs> I'm in that group. 
Like if I could just see my kids grow up and see the grandkids, you know, I don't really want to die. How about you? I have a pastor friend, I've told you about him before. His name's Dan Cummings. He came to speak to the character in. We, we invited him when, when all the Verity students were there, all the Eternal Visions were students there. There were probably 200 kids in the, in, the, in the building at the time. I remember he came one morning and preached, and, and, the, and the place was packed. And you probably know, I mentioned to you before, that Dan Cummings was a marathoner. He ran a Boston marathon. He ran the crim all the time. He was super fast. When you watch the crim, it's a 10-mile race in Flint. When you watch the crim, the Ethiopians would come in just like a dark blur. They would all cross. And they look like they sprint the Kenyans. The Kenyans look like they are sprinting for 10 miles. Seriously. Their heels go up as high as their head and back. I can't even do that. You know what I'm saying? When they run, their heels are as high as their head and back. They're going down the bricks in Flint. And you're just like, whoa, whoa. You wait for a while, not too long, and here comes Dan Cummings. He was that fast, six-minute miles. He was quick. But a couple of years ago, and you know, when he spoke in, in chapel, I remember that Kyle was there. My oldest son, he was kind of interested. In that. I remember we'd go up to Dan, and we're talking to him about nutrition. He goes like, I never touch white flour. I never touch refined sugar. He says, I, I watch my fat intake. This is the way, this is what I do with my protein. And he was very careful. And he was a specimen. But a couple of years ago, cancer caught up with him anyway. And in a sad and lingering way, he died. And I noticed his, his girl got married this summer. Saw the pictures of it. Her brothers walked her down the aisle. You could see in their face the mixture of joy and grief. Those boys walking their sister down the aisle. And then she did something that really touched me. She, she took her flowers, her flowers from her wedding, and she and her new husband went to Grand Haven. When she was married there, that's where her dad was from. And they visited the cemetery, and she laid her flowers on her dad's grave. But her sorrow, it was not hopeless sorrow. We sorrow not as others who have no hope. She will see her dad again. He, she, he will have her in his arms again. If it's permitted, they will have the father-daughter dance somewhere. You should have laughed at that. <laughs> and if Dan was alive and he was here, I would have him speak today. And I'm fairly confident that he would tell you this. I don't care how fast you run or how healthy you are. You will never outrun death. But there is one who has conquered death. And by faith, you can conquer death too. And so today, do you have life? Do you have eternal life? Do you have abundant life? What about that interruption? It, do you think there might have been a connection there? you think there might have been a reason that in God's heart for that interruption on the way to heal the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue? you think God 
just might have providentially arranged that little encounter for the sake of the people that were looking on and the dear man who would have to have faith to believe that Jesus would raise his daughter, I kind of think so. And I think he'll do that for you too. He'll interrupt your life with things you don't understand. He'll interrupt your life with things you, you, you really don't appreciate at the time. And those things will be things that will contribute to your faith, which you're going to need to have to believe that Jesus Christ alone can conquer your darkest enemy. May God strengthen and inspire each of us today to live and believe in such a way that the people that live around us will understand that it is only through Jesus Christ that we will conquer death.